Aloha, everyone. This is Alan Robayashi broadcasting to you from Honolulu, Hawaii, my hometown, for another episode of I Love Photography Live. You might be watching us on youtube.com slash photoshelter, or you might be listening to the podcast by searching for I Love Photography on iTunes. As usual, I'm joined by my guest host. Well, not my guest host, my regular host, my co-host. Your Sarah co-host. <laughs> over there in New York City. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Alan. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's very hot here compared to uh, the temps we have going on in New York. I'm sure it's we're in full swing of fall here. So it's full swing fall. It's full swing fall in Hawaii, which means you know 85 degrees weather as usual. <laughs> that sounds lovely. <laughs> well, we uh, just had the midterm elections, and I think the biggest uh, piece of news prior to the midterm elections was Ebola. And then the midterm elections happened, and then like Ebola fell off the map, in part also because they think that maybe the cases have started to recede. Uh, I was listening to an NPR report yesterday that said in Liberia the uh, number of empty hospital beds has increased, uh, which they're not quite sure how to interpret yet, but they think it might be a turning point in the struggle against Ebola. And we came across a, a pretty great essay uh, by Daniel Barahulak, uh, of those portraits of people who are fighting Ebola on the front lines. Um, and the story is interesting not only because of uh, Ebola and not only because he's, he's there in the midst of Ebola, um, but he had to throw together a makeshift studio that you're seeing here. He said that he went into Monrovia and he bought the biggest white bed sheets that he could find. <laughs> Which was... Yeah, and this was five hours away from where he was located. Five hours away, and they went to you know the the equivalent of like a Home Depot and bought some lights because uh, he had no access to strobes. They had to buy you know hot lights. He brought them back and found that they weren't powerful enough, so they had to go back again, uh, five hours away to buy more lights. Um, and the result though is 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 fantastic. It's kind of classic uh, portraits against white seamless. Uh, Daniel not only shot the photos, but he, he took the stories down and they created a, a piece here on the New York Times, uh, interactive piece, um, talking about the people who are fighting on the front lines uh, and their stories, and he said they were all very kind of eager to share what they were going through, um, and the portraits are very, very moving. Yeah, they, they threw this shoot together in a matter of less than a week, which he said, you know, is usually doesn't happen with a studio setup and going in to try to find people's stories, but that everyone wanted to cooperate and w was proud to step in and, and talk about what they've been dealing with. I was listening to that NPR report yesterday, and, you know, the, the reporter who was a, a Times reporter actually grew up in Liberia, and she said that the city was still pretty bustling. It wasn't a ghost town as you might expect, and one of the reasons why she said was, Ebola in total has taken the lives of 2,000 Liberians. By contrast, their civil war took the lives of 300,000 people. Wow. Um, and the civil war was, was in recent memory for a lot of these people. And right. she suggested that there was a, a strong amount of resilience among, amongst the Liberians because they had this sort of relative perspective of, yeah, I mean, Ebola is scary for sure, but the, the toll is nowhere near the Civil War. Right. The, the image that you were just on, number five within the slideshow, that 
that was on the cover of the New York Times, and that caught my eye immediately. It was sitting out in the lobby yeah. of the building, of, of Photo Shelter's building, and I just, it caught my eye. I ran over to it to look at it. I mean, it's just a beautiful, moving portrait. I love it. It's this, amazing, like, the quality you can get with some makeshift sheets, <laughs> a makeshift studio with hot lights. I mean, this is, this is gorgeous. And, and that sort of reinforces this notion that it's really not about the equipment. You can go out and buy, you know, an $8,000 lighting pack, or you can buy a couple sheets, and if mm -hmm. you know how to photograph, you know how to photograph. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd say that's definitely true, and it's also about the story that's behind it, you know, that just made for some great pictures. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the guy clearly knows how to shoot, and, and you see the exasperation on the faces of the workers. This guy looks like he's just been working for 24 hours straight. Um, oh, man. He's just sweaty. Sweaty. Wearing all that gear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, that, that link to this story uh, and the setup uh, post on the Lens blog, all of these links will be available on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com if you want to check out the links yourself. Uh, and then another story that's sort of fallen off the map um, is this story about Syria. Uh, I think the Syrian story has fallen off the map not only because of the midterm elections in Ebola, but because ISIS slash ISIL slash the Islamic State uh, has kind of overtaken the narrative in the Middle East, but Syria was, is going through a civil war. And there have been photos that have been leaked suggesting widespread torture. Um, for whatever reason, they are documenting, the Syrians are documenting the treatment of their own prisoners. And there's someone who found a trove of these images, tens of thousands of these images, um, and is, is trying to figure out the best way to release the images. So this story is over on the New York Times. Um, it's, it's nuts. You're seeing kind of these blacked out images uh, on the screen here. Um, people being bound and gagged and hit and tortured, and uh, it's terrible. Terrible, yeah. terrible stuff. They haven't really found, for whatever reason, uh, the people who, for whom these photos are resonant. It hasn't caused an uproar, um, as it should. So I, I just wonder whether it's sort of being lost in the news cycle or, and or people are just sort of disinterested in, in more Middle East strife, whatever the, the case is. Uh, it's tragic, and this reminded me of the regime of Pol Pot over in Cambodia in the 70s. Pol Pot had his people, they, so they killed 25% of the population in Cambodia. They think during the Pol Pot regime 3.3 million people were killed, and a lot of them were processed through these uh, basically the killing plants, and the killing fields is the term that you, you hear from that regime. And they sort of meticulously shot portraits of everyone they killed, which I thought was one of the most fascinating um, and uncomfortable portrait projects ever, when you look at the totality of these photos, because they were really sort of non-discriminating in terms of children, women, men, different ethnic groups. They killed a lot of Chinese, they killed a lot of Muslims, they killed, you know, everyone that wasn't going to be a part of the communist regime. Um, but this was just a fascinating look at, like, the mind of these these tyrannical leaders. The, 
yeah, I, I was shocked to see so many children depicted in this um, in this collection of images, and also reading that you know their blindfolds are taken; they don't know where they are. The image is taken immediately after their blindfold is removed, and they don't know who's captured them or where they are. I mean, and so that just makes the images just that much more haunting and terrifying. So I was in Cambodia last year, and I went to one of the places where they killed a lot of people, and it was a it was a school. So they converted a school, an old school facility, into this torture uh, chamber. So imagine, you know, any school in America built out of concrete block in the 50s that was suddenly overtaken by a brutal regime um, that turned these rooms into the tiniest little prison cells and torture rooms possible. Um, and so it was very eerie because it reminded me of it reminded me of schools that I've visited as a kid. Um, and then they, they have documentation because it's now a museum, a museum of genocide. They have documentation of how the, the prisoners were tortured and you just, and then you see these photos as well, uh, you know, in some of the exhibits and you just can't believe that it, you know, you're standing on an area where, you know, 10,000, 20,000 people were processed and killed. Um, but again, just the, 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 the portraits, I, I'm surprised that more people are unaware of these portraits uh, from Cambodia, and I'm surprised that more people are unaware of the photos out of Syria, um, because this is going on, you know, in our lifetime. It's happening, like, right now in the case of Syria. Uh, so hopefully more people will be able to see that, and it'll raise some international furor over what's going on there. Over on the Washington Post, uh, a really great series of photos. Guardians of Life, the indigenous women fighting oil exploitation in the Amazon. So in the Amazon, uh, like many places in the world that have resources, in this case oil, oil companies are going in there, uh, taking over the land, uh, drilling for oil, ruining a lot of the ecosystem uh, and a woman by the name of Philippe, or I don't know if it's a woman or a man, maybe it's a man, Philippe Jacome, uh, went in there and took photos of a number of women who are sort of protesting. Uh, they're leading. Women. Yeah. yeah, they're leading the protest against these oil companies coming into their, into their land. And another case where just really awesome portraiture. Yeah, yeah, amazing portraits. And yet this... This work reminded me a little bit of Jimmy Nielsen's work, uh, which Jimmy we were Nelson, talking yeah. Nelson, excuse me, that we were talking about last week. And I actually, this is so much more successful at depicting a culture, I think, than his images because uh, Philippe gives quotes from the women right beneath the photos in their own handwriting. Mm -hmm. And then there's um, there's kind of like a a hand painted color around the images that sort of emulates the the type of tribal face paint that they use. This this woman is gorgeous. It's, it's like crazy, like a beautiful yeah. portrait. It, it struck me too, you know, when we were looking at Jimmy's stuff uh, and we had viewed that stuff before, and last week we were talking about the criticism of how he wasn't portraying uh, the indigenous people in an authentic way. Right. And I think part of that was because he was using this very... Uh, Hollywood style lighting. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of sort of rim lighting or very dramatic lighting and dramatic poses. Um, people were wearing very traditional garb. 
in a way that I don't see, you know, when you look at these women, this is probably considered, you know, a, a authentic garb nowadays, but they're not, like, naked wearing, you know, bark, mm -hmm. um, which, which we saw a lot of kind of in Jimmy's photos. Yeah, exactly. These, these just feel very more intimate and uh, real. Yeah, for sure. So, absolutely, I think this series of photos is much more successful in showing an indigenous population and, and with just kind of a head and shoulders shot as well. It didn't mm -hmm. require a full length uh, portrait. It didn't require environment per se. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't inc require, you know, $20,000 worth of lighting gear. Um, right, which is interesting that he decided to zero in just on their faces and not do environmental portraiture, especially because the topic is about their land and their environment. But I think this is way more effective to have their face. You're looking, they're looking straight into the lens. You're looking mm -hmm. right into their eyes and then their words right beneath it. It's very successful. I love and it. The face paint almost acts as sort of the, the environment. You know, you know yeah. you're you know you're kind of in South America when you see this sort of you see the faces which are obviously uh, ethnic, and then you see the face painting on top of it, and it sort of contextualizes it, and then you see the way that he's displayed the photo with the ornamentation around in the frame area and the handwriting, and you kinda know you kind of know where you are, or at least it's setting a stage to, to, to insinuate that you're not in a studio. You're not looking at a white person in a, in a studio. Yeah, yeah, it frames it very well, definitely. Love it, Philippe. <laughs> Feature shoot, one of our favorite little spots. Uh, <laughs> Andrew Fingerman, our CEO, found these images, uh, behind-the-scenes glimpse into the world of Miss Rodeo America, another pageant that I was unaware that existed, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yep, by Gabrielle Herman, one of my favorite photographers. She's amazing. She usually does food stuff, so this is a little bit different for her, um, but I still think they're very successful. She went with a writer from Cosmopolitan and was assigned to cover these rodeo queens, and she kind of fell in love with the culture and has been going back and photographing them since. Um, and they're just amazing. She mentions that it's like a mix between rodeo and uh, the Miss America pageant, which I'd say is definitely accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. So they, they, they dress up and they have gowns, and then they ride and try to, like, rope calves. Yeah. Right? So they don't try. Of, they do. They, they do. It do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's think, I've been thinking more and more about the Miss America pageant. Uh, yeah. In part because I've read some op-eds, and, and then I have a friend in Hawaii who's running for Miss Hawaii. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, the, the op-ed that I read was really like, oh, it might have it even been like Stephen Colbert. Like, I can't, yes. I, I can't believe that we have women parading around in swimsuits in the 21st century as a part of a beauty pageant. Right. You know, and this, to, you know, thank God they're not parading around in, in swimsuits. They're out there, like, showing, like, yeah, we're actually yeah. cowboys. We can do this stuff. And we look pretty good. Like that to me is a more, even though even though the notion of a beauty pageant it seems very anachronistic in some ways. This to me is a more uh, a progressive way of showing a pageant. It's like actually real skill combined yeah. with beauty, not like you know baton twirling combined with swimsuit combined with uh, you know solve world peace uh, in two minutes. Exactly. Yes. 
Yes, totally agreed. I would much rather be in this than a Miss America pageant. <laughs> well, you know, you're from Texas, and maybe we can pick that up. Start <laughs> right. working on your, your roping skills. Yeah, I better start. <laughs> <laughs> but Gabriella, like, lovely images here. This is a beautiful image. Yeah, it's so striking. She's just yeah. done a really great job capturing the culture. I mean, there's such a deep history, you know, with rodeo culture. And, but you don't see it that much in today's world, but it's still going on, it's still strong, and it's these beautiful women participating in it. It's awesome. <laughs> and you don't really see that, I mean, no, you really don't see black seamless with a hard light for a portrait that often. No, you don't, that's true. You know, and, and, and I think it, it is notable that it is a hard light, because it, you, you can't use a hard light on a lot of people, be, uh, unless they're like young and youthful, because you're going to get hard shadows that accentuate lines and, and whatnot. But here you go, a beautiful cowgirl uh, against black seamless with a hard light. There you go. <laughs> we haven't talked about gear in a while. No. Let's talk about gear. I know it's not your favorite topic, but boy, do I love <laughs> gear. I know. You do. Gearhead. You know, I have one of the Sikonics, uh light meters. Okay. And, you know, it's the old school one with the little bulb on it. It's gray. Right, uh, yeah. It's been around for 20 years or however long it's been around for. And then something like two years ago, Sikonic came out with a, re uh, a new model. I don't think it's a replacement. I think they still make that old model. Um, but they, ha they came out with a whole new line that looked like iPhones. And they're touchscreens, and they're much more expensive. They're, they're much more powerful but my question was always, like, I'm going to drop this thing just like I dropped my iPhone. The screen's going to crack. Why would I ever spend, you know, three, $400? And why can't I just plug something into my iPhone and make that a light meter? Mm. And some people had created apps because there is a light sensor on the iPhone. It's the light sensor that dims your screen in bright light or, you know, whatnot. Um, and so people were trying to use it, but it wasn't sensitive enough. Along comes a company called Lumu, Lu.mu, and they created exactly what we were talking about. It's a little plug-in. It goes into the headphone jack and it's got a little light sphere there and then there's an app and then it becomes a light meter. And it looks, the, the interface is so simple and elegant. I love yeah. it. Like measure. That's exactly what I want. Just measure. Yeah, just just measure this thing for me. <laughs> so how much is this thing? Huh? Let's see. It's Let's... like one, 150 from what I saw. Oh yeah, yeah, 150. Well, it's not exactly cheap there, 150. Yeah. Uh, but if you already have the phone, 150 is probably cheaper than buying a good light meter. Right. I wonder if that includes the 150. I guess that would include the app as well. Probably includes the app. Yeah. Uh, yep. And smartly, they have this little um, necklace. So after you pull it out, you just plug the little uh, light sphere into the necklace, and then hopefully you won't lose it. Clearly, you'll lose the, the light sphere at some point. <laughs> you, <laughs> chances are you probably will. <laughs> that's, that, you know, that, that's my only hesitation. My Sikonic old-school light meter has been dinged around so much, and rings and pieces of plastic have fallen off, and the thing still works. This thing awesome. looks great. I think it's a smart idea, except you're going to lose the $150 piece at some point, mm. and you're not going to have a light meter. I would love to try this, though. I might consider getting this. Yeah, okay. Why don't we see if we can get a little sample of this thing? That would be out, huh? That would be amazing, yeah. Definitely. Send us something over. We'll test it out. Put it on the show. 
Yeah. That, that never works. We, that never <laughs> works for us. Is we're that actually, a no. Yeah, we're actually going to have to write, you know, it's not like we're Ellen or something where we just say, hey, send us a new Lumu. We actually have to go and write people and say, hi, we're Photo Shelter and we'd love to test your product. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then the other piece of gear that we found, I think you found this, huh? Yeah, yeah. This is... Okay. Uh, tell, tell us about this, and then let me tell you my, my thoughts here. Yeah, please, please. I'm, I'm excited to hear them. This is taking selfies to a new height. It's basically on a drone. It's a drone quadcopter that attaches to your wrist and then flies out, takes video, and then flies back to you, which is crazy. Do we now, need this? Do we need this in the world? <laughs> Alex. Here's the thing. I, you know, I was watching this. And I, I wasn't even sure initially when this product comes out, this Nixie comes out, whether it was a real product or a parody. Ah, you thought it was like an Onion article, huh? Yeah, you know how there's all these videos that come out and then they have like a, a stereotypical scientist. You know, this guy comes on, he's got a German accent, he's like, I'm a tinkerer. <laughs> and he goes, you know, and, and the problem I'm trying to solve is that people always want to take selfies, but it's too close. Um, so we, what we really needed was a, a wrist technology that flies off of your wrist, goes in the air, and takes itself. <laughs> you know, so he's almost, it's a parody of himself, of playing up, trying to solve a problem where there is no problem. Mm. We really didn't need wrist technology that could take a selfie. I don't know that we did. I, but I, I will say, whenever I see someone out in public with their phone or their GoPro on a stick and it's yeah. facing them, I mean, that yeah. always shocks me a little bit. And maybe there is a market for something like the Nixie. I don't know, but if they make it look stylish enough, there just might be. Do you think it shocks you because of the audacity of having a stick to take <laughs> a portrait? Yeah. Which somehow is mitigated when a, when a device flies off your wrist. <laughs> like, that's, that wouldn't be shocking. <laughs> My wristwatch turn into a, a drone to take a selfie. God, we're all going to be like Detective Gadget, you know? Like, just... Uh. It's, it's, it's weird. Uh, these, these are weird times we live in. Very strange, very strange. But now, on the, on the flip side, when the thing first flew off his wrist and then took a selfie, that was pretty impressive. But when it did what it was supposed to do, I was kind of impressed. Well, you know, for uh, we have the Apple Watch coming out, and right. I think it must be five hundred dollars. And for five hundred dollars, it should it should fly into the air and take a selfie. <laughs> That's what I. Somebody talked to Tim Cook. They need to merge. Yeah, they need to merge ideas here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Nixie iWatch special edition. Yeah. Well, I would love to try out the Nixie too. So Nixie, if you're listening to us, send us a Nixie. Try <laughs> <laughs> that out. Sarah, we often talk in the industry, this photographic industry that we're a part of. Mm -hmm. We talk about working for free and how destructive it is to work for free. Um, so I'm looking at my Facebook feed and as we all are, you know, we have a diverse group of friends who populate our news feed. I have a friend who's a, an acrobat, circus performer, a carny as we say in uh, like power. what, in like 1920? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So all of a sudden I see an article entitled The Consequence of Working for Free in the Circus. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, every industry out there has this problem. 
And so the problem in the circus industry is there's been a huge uh, increase in interest in aerial work. So you know how they have those long pieces of cloth that hang from the ceiling and you see all of a sudden, you know, yoga aerial classes and Pilates aerial classes and pole dancing and all this kind of stuff. Well, all of this stuff kind of falls under the rubric. I'm, I'm totally making this up now. Rubric of circus performance. And there's a lot of people who go out and they learn some aerial stuff. Um, and then they, they want to be a part of a show or a part of a circus. And so this article in... Uh, a World of Circus, the North American Circus Competition at circuscompetition.com talks about how destructive it is and how you bring the free market prices. It's the same argument that we've heard with photography. Yep. And I was just so stunned. I mean, I shouldn't be stunned, but I was stunned to see it in the context of, of circus. And you know what? Every photographer should read this. Yeah. So that they understand that the, the problem is not endemic to just photography, it's an economic problem. When you do stuff for free, you hurt the people who are doing it for, for, for money, and you deflate uh, the value of the work that was being done for pay previously. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I really like that this article puts it on the performers themselves. They, you know, She says, it's our job to educate our clients, to understand that they are paying for our hours of training, you know, our equipment, our insurance, professionalism, and the safety of the people performing. You know, it's like it's their job. It's our job to do it. And I, 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 li I liked that perspective on this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut and paste this article, and then I'm going to replace circus with photography and see if it still reads exactly the same. <laughs> it I definitely will. It definitely will. <laughs> I mean, it's because, you know, if we don't, if if photographers don't start talking more openly about their rates, it, it, it really puts younger photographers in the dark. And I feel like I hear so many about what to charge. That yeah, is. yeah. And I feel like I hear a lot of photo editors uh, in interviews say, you know, I love hiring young photographers. They're hustling. You know, they want us, They're hungry for the work. And it's like, yeah, or are they just charging a lot less because they don't know better and they don't think they should be charging a lot? So hustling is like code word for working for free or close to free. I that's the impression that I get. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. And but you're right. We we've talked about this before, which is like there's a lot of opacity about pricing. Like photographers don't want to talk about how much they charge. Right. Right. And I don't I don't think that that's not healthy for the industry as a whole. You know, we we were over at the Photo Plus Expo, and uh, I did a talk with Joe McNally. Joe was throwing out numbers of what he charged for stuff, which I thought was so refreshing. And then after, this woman came up to me and she says, yeah, you know, I, I was asked to shoot a wedding, you know, come out for four hours and shoot, and she's like, I don't know how much to charge. Mm. Well, I'm not a wedding photographer, but, you know, I know wedding photographers. But I yeah. also know, like, you know, if you're going to give up a weekend, right? You be it better be worth your time. So I said, oh, you should charge $1,000. Oh, easily. Right? And I said, you should charge, well, actually, I told her 2000 Good. So she said, so she said 1000 and she pointed out correctly, she's like, because, you know, they think all I do is show for four hours and shoot. But actually, like, before the wedding, I'm prepping all my, my gear. I shoot the wedding for four hours. I have my commute time. Then I go and I have to process the images for several hours. Right. And I think it's important for, it's very important for photographers to let their clients know that that time is included in their, in their estimate. Exactly. Exactly. 
But then she she sort of said, ah, I don't know, it's a friend. I don't know if I can charge that much. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. I think that I think that that internal dialogue happens every time you get asked to do a shoot until you really are comfortable with your pricing and have enough clients under your belt. So I totally get it. Yeah, and and uh, we've interviewed photographers who said before, and, and John Harrington, who's uh, who wrote the Business Practices for Photographers book, said uh, he would never begrudge someone who's trying to put food on the table, right? Mm -hmm. If you have to make that call to shoot something for what you consider to be under market because you're literally you have to pay rent or you need to eat, then no one can begrudge that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if it's like it's your weekend, it's your friend. Like why would you? Right. Why would you discount that, man? You're giving up the only the only thing we have is like our time. True. We have time to create a, a quality of life, and you're not doing yourself any favors if you're, you know, giving up your weekend and feeling all bent out of shape because you didn't charge enough. Right. Time is money. Time is money. Enough of that. <laughs> I Let's never thought we. I never thought we'd go to circuscompetition.com on I Love Photo. <laughs> Here it happened. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite actresses is Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and we talked about Jennifer Lawrence when the hack nudes came out, yep. whatever that was, six weeks ago or whatnot. But, you know, the first time I saw her perform was in a movie called Winter's Bone. Uh, ah. And I think it was her first mainstream movie. And I just, it was so shocking to me. I was like, are these people acting or is this, like, real? <laughs> um, the cast is just incredible. And the story was, was awesome. And the acting... The acting that she did in that was so unlike the Hunger Games and all this kind of stuff. Uh, at any rate, uh, J-Law, as we like to call her in the industry, uh, appears in a Vanity Fair spread. And let me show you these photos. They're, they are taken by Patrick DeMarchelier. And they're horrible. Uh, yep. That doesn't even look like Jennifer Lawrence. No. There is so much retouching. Like, look how bright the face is. Which... Okay, fine. You want to tone a photo? That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. You know, toning a photo make the face the face a little bit brighter. But there's so, there's so much overt Photoshop here where the skin tones are smoothed out. Yeah. There's sharpening of the eyes, the symmetry of the lips. Yeah. It's if I was, yeah, it just looks so weird, man. <laughs> it does. I'm glad they kept most of her freckles intact, though. Uh huh. I'm glad that that happened, but I, I also just be, also beyond the photoshopping of the shoot, I think it's really kind of a boring collection of images. It is boring. Which is sad because she's she's so eclectic and you know has so much personality and yes. it's just not coming through in this whole spread. And you know what, I I mean maybe she lost weight for the photo shoot. I don't believe this is. I believe they retouched the legs and the arms in this pretty significantly. Yeah, the, yeah, probably. Probably. I mean, right. that happens. Yeah, yeah, that happens so regularly that I wouldn't be shocked at all. I really would love to see what the original images look like. Oh well, then we need to get over to Jezebel.com and, and tell them to, <laughs> to put up a ransom for it. <laughs> yeah, put up a ransom for it. It's just unfortunate, you know. To your point, J Law, when we see her in TV interviews and whatnot, she's a very, very charismatic, funny person. Mm -hmm. And to see her turn into what looks to me to be a very plastic personality, yeah, it's just a disservice. You know, that yeah. that to me is not what photography is about. I agreed, and I think the I think the photoshopping really did that here, as well as just 
the actual shoot and the scenery yeah. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> now it is it is Vanity Fair, and they're going for kind of old school uh, fashion glamour style, but I still think that I still think they're not successful. Yeah. No. Bummer. 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 Next time, Patrick. Next time. <laughs> uh, as always, we like to end on a funny note or a happy note. Over on Petapixel, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get the shot. If you want the shot, sometimes you got to go to great lengths. <laughs> <laughs> and this Canadian photographer, Chance Faulkner, said, I need to get the engagement shot and I need to be close enough, but this couple want, they want to go by a lake. Uh, and so there's not a whole lot of places unless I have, you know, a 600 millimeter lens and, you know, it's just going to be weird. So Chance said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hide in a trash can. <laughs> That's the obvious option. That's the obvious option. So here he is in the trash can, uh, kind of shaded by a tree. He's in there. I don't know. Did it say how long he was in there for? I didn't see that. Had to be a while, though. Yeah. You know, he's got to get there before they show up, and you know who knows what goes on in these these things. Uh, so, but check this out. Look at that. Great shot. Great shot. But you can see now why he had to be in the trash can because he's like next to this little lake, mm -hmm. and it looks like a kind of a suburban area with not a whole lot of cover. Uh, and so he's got to be in the trash can to get the shot. So the, he takes this shot, beautiful shot, look at that, like tack sharp, Yeah. nice out of foot, like shallow depth of field. You better not screw that up when you're in a trash can. Oh, man, you get it. Yeah, I mean, that would be unfortunate. And then, so they're hugging it out. It's a great moment. And then the, the guy who proposes points to where the photographer is hiding. So you get this beautiful sequence of photos where the woman is just cracking up because she can't believe the guy was hiding in a trash can. Aww. And then, it's pretty cute. And then she snaps a little iPhone thing, which maybe is one of the, the shots at the top. But I love that Chance Faulkner in photography, man. I'd hire that guy. Yeah. Yeah, he needs to put that on his website. I once was in a trash can. Yeah. That should That's be like trashcanweddingphotographer.com. <laughs> the SEO going on that stuff. Right. Uh, hmm, not sure how much business he'd get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Petapixel gives you so much exposure. Now, now they're out there. They'll be like, oh, who was that guy who shot the trash can photos? you got to optimize against that stuff because they're not going to remember Chance Faulkner. No. Two, no they're gonna... two months, three years down the line. Right. It's going to be the trash can man. The trash can man. Yeah. Sarah, what's the weather like going to be uh, in New York this weekend? Uh, you know, it's going to be chilly. That much I know. Yeah. Any any shooting for you this weekend? Yes, I'm going to shoot my friend who hosts the show Pizza Party on Heritage Radio Network, and we're going to set her up in a pizza parlor in near Union Square and get some good shots of her. Good eating. old good old Talia. Yep, Talia Ralph. Talia Ralph. <laughs> I remember when you were a guest host on that old Pizza Party show on Heritage Radio. I was. Yes, indeed. All right. Okay. What about you? We gonna get any Hawaii? I think I'll I think I'll go to the beach. You know, the one thing I was thinking, Sigma. You know, we reviewed a couple Sigma lenses. We reviewed the 35 millimeter lens, and then we reviewed the 50 millimeter lens. Well, they just released the 150 to 600 millimeter lens. Wow. It's a zoom. 150 to 600. What a what a ridiculous focal length. Um, but I thought, hey, next time I'm out in Hawaii, maybe I'll bring one of those bad boys out and shoot some surfing. Hey, Sigma, you listening? 
<laughs> Sigma. <laughs> now, Sigma we actually know, so maybe Sigma will actually listen to this, and then we can get a copy of that lens. And, That'd be and great. That would be great. Uh, but this weekend, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna chill out. Sounds good. Okay. Well, for Sarah Jacobs, this is Alan Murabayashi. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Love Photography Live. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. <laughs>